Christmas, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tailed Wowkey Specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Welcome to this Teot Dwalki special of Physical Attraction. This week we're going to be talking about, for our scenario for the end of the world, the favourite of many a rugged survivalist camped out in the deep forests, or busy making new improvements to their underground bunker. If you're restocking with tin supplies, you might be worried about peak oil. Now, this really is a special case of the Malthusian catastrophe that we dealt with in episode 7, but I think it deserves special attention partly for the degree of attention that it's received, and partly because I think it's more likely than a classic Malthusian crisis. So you'll remember from that episode that Malthus was concerned that we'd run out of food specifically. And in my view, our agricultural resources, we've got a greater potential to develop those than our ability to extract fossil fuels from the ground, Although, although I could be wrong on that front. And also, picking this as a separate topic gives me an opportunity to have a rant about renewable energy, which I just selfishly want to do anyway, so there you are. So what is peak oil? It's very simple. Fossil fuels, as we know, are fossilised remains of dead plants and animals buried in the ground. And for that reason, because only so many plants and animals have existed, there can only be so many hydrocarbons, only so many fuels buried in the ground. There can only be a finite amount of the fossil fuels, coal, oil and natural gas. Eventually, Production of oil, coal and natural gas is going to hit a peak and then decline as the remaining fossil fuel reserves are harder and harder to extract, and more and more costly to extract. Now when this decline is observed, and people begin to realise that we're running out of the fossil fuels that have driven our electricity supplies and economy for so long, the result will be a spike in the price of fossil fuels, economic collapse and general catastrophe. Tensions in already wonderfully politically stable regions such as the Middle East will rise, and the potential for war will increase general destruction and devastation. Now, I was just listening just the other day to another podcast, which is the Talking Politics podcast, which is run by some academics out of Cambridge. And uh, one of the theses they had there was that, actually, it was the price of oil fluctuating in 2002-3 to that led to the global financial crash that happened in 2007-8, for economic reasons that, I have to admit, I didn't quite understand just listening to it once. But it does go to show that Serious people realise that even tiny things like fluctuations in the price of oil can cause economic devastation in a fragile system like ours. And so, if it ever became clear that we were running out of oil, or that there would only be enough oil left to last for a few decades, then you think people might start to panic. And if production falls, then the price is likely to spiral upwards. So it could cause quite significant economic damage. And then, of course, there's the really apocalyptic scenario, which is that fossil fuels actually run out and we don't have any way of replacing them. You know, so there's no transport infrastructure, there's no electricity production. You imagine that it would cause wars, instability, and there would be serious, serious issues uh, surrounding from that. But not everyone sees things this way. One of the most chilling statements I've ever read is from Dr. Christoph Ruhl, who is the chief economist for BP, so therefore he does have a financial interest in dispelling rumours of peak oil, but anyway. This is his quote on the subject. He said, quote, 
Physical peak oil, which I have no reason to accept as a valid statement either on theoretical, scientific or ideological grounds, would be insensitive to prices. In fact, the whole hypothesis of peak oil, which is that there's a certain amount of oil in the ground consumed at a certain rate and then it's finished, does not react to anything. Therefore, there will never be a moment when the world runs out of oil, because there will always be a price at which the last drop of oil can clear the market. And you can turn anything into oil if you're willing to pay the financial and environmental price. Global warming is likely to be more of a natural limit than all these peak oil theories combined. Peak oil has been predicted for 150 years. It has never happened, and it will stay this way. End quote. I've read this statement dozens of times, and I still can't get my head around what he's saying in the middle here. The whole hypothesis that there's a certain amount of oil in the ground doesn't react to anything. Well, no, but the hypothesis that water is wet doesn't react to anything. At first he seems to be saying that when there's one drop of oil left, the price will be infinite, and so somehow this will be equivalent to never running out of oil. And then the scary Bond villain part, that you can turn anything into oil if you're willing to pay the price. Which sounds so much like Soylent Green as people that I'm kind of afraid of it. However, I will give Christoph Rule credit for acknowledging that climate change is probably going to be the limiting factor in terms of our consumption of fossil fuels. But I really don't see how the fact that the price might change, or we might develop some way of turning biofuels into oil, none of that's going to change the fact that at some point there's going to be a transition when we run out of fossil fuels. And if we haven't figured out how to reduce our dependence on these fossil fuels, it could be a very bumpy one. But okay, part of what he's saying, and part of what I accept, is that there are new technologies that allow previously untapped reserves to be turned into oil. Hydrocarbon fracking, things like that. I mean, that's for natural gas, but the same techniques exist for oil as well. New methods of drilling and so on. But if these processes are more costly and more time-consuming than ever before, as they're likely to be, compared to the good old days where you could drill into the ground and get flattened by a massive torrent of oil, like in that one Simpsons episode, then you haven't really addressed the problem of declining production and spiking price. I mean, you could almost define a peak oil as being when it's no longer economically efficient to, to get the oil that's out of the ground back out of the ground because the price isn't high enough. The idea that there will be one infinitely valuable barrel of oil, or that we can just process dead people, animals, and the food crops we need to live into oil, none of that is a particularly comforting prospect for peak oil doomers. Now this is a very difficult topic to research because the politics of it is so fraught and it runs the gamut from people who are convinced that peak oil is impossible and will never be reached, and people who are convinced that peak oil has already occurred and we just haven't realised it yet. I mean, it's so much easier to research something like how likely an asteroid is to hit us because people think it's so unlikely that the politicians haven't bothered scoping out the field yet and taking sides and arguing about it. So issues in peak oil arise because... Obviously, the production of oil doesn't follow a neat curve with an obvious peak. There are plateaus, and most of the time, when the production plateaus, people predict that peak oil has already occurred. This happened as far back as 1915, and predictions have been frequent in the decades since. The original model, the Hubbard model of peak oil, suggests a simple curve of rise and decline, as you'd expect for the exploitation of a finite resource. And while it fits the data better than some other models, none of the models have proved especially good at predicting when the peak will happen. Oil production from individual countries, for example, often does follow a decent Hubbard peak, so, you know, it's obvious why. At first it's slow, because people don't know there's much oil there, then everyone gets in on the act and starts selling it, all of the reserves are discovered, production hits a peak, then, as the reserves get harder and harder to exploit, or, alternatively, 
other countries start to compete, the production declines again. So obviously, in a globalised world, it doesn't necessarily mean all that much. It could just be a statement about individual wells, or maybe production just declines because they're being outcompeted by other nations, rather than necessarily that the reserves have run dry. It could just be that there's more economically viable oil somewhere else, and in a globalised world, everything will just flee to where the most economically viable oil is. The other major issue with researching this is that there are so many different statistics that you can relate to oil, and a lot of them are very confusing. So, for example, the amount of oil fields being newly discovered, well, that peaked a long time ago, in the 1960s. Back then, they found 55 billion barrels of new reserves a year. The rate of discovery in the modern era is around 10 to 15 billion barrels a year, although it has seemed pretty stable at that, you know, the rate of discovery isn't declining. We're currently producing around 35 billion barrels a year. So, simple maths might lead you to say, okay, fine, we're producing 35 billion barrels a year, we're discovering 10 to 15 billion barrels a year, therefore the net amount that's in the ground must be going down, according to us at least. But this isn't quite true, and in fact, it hasn't proved to be true. Because sometimes discovery gets confused between new oil fields and old oil fields. They're constantly exploiting older oil fields in new ways, and extracting more oil from them. And estimates for the total amount of proven reserves, the oil that can be accessed, keeps rising. This is kind of counterintuitive. If we're discovering oil at a rate of 10 to 15 billion barrels a year, and we're producing 35 billion barrels a year, how can there be more proven reserves year after year after year? According to OPEC, that is the conglomerate of oil producing countries, the proved reserves are now nearly 1.5 trillion barrels, which, assuming that no more is discovered but our consumption doesn't rise either, gives us a minimum of around 40 years until we run out. Of course, it could be less if our consumption rises, which it seems like it might. But a lot of people have disputed these OPEC figures. The ambiguity arises in what you consider to be oil that can be extracted, and what you don't consider can be extracted. And that's changing because of technology, but it can also change just because of people's definitions. You can see graphs where there are sudden jumps in the reserves reported by countries, basically because they've reclassified a whole bunch of potential oil as extractable, and these can sometimes seem to come out of nowhere. And all of this assumes that people are being honest about what's available, which is highly dubious given the amount of money that can be made out of oil, controlling the price, etc. So you can talk to experts who say that you shouldn't believe this 1.5 trillion barrels figure and, you know, half of it's probably made up or more, and you can talk to other experts who say that that figure is far too low and they're keeping it low to boost the price, so it's, it's very, very difficult. And the result is that there are a hell of a lot of figures flying around, and after a while, I kind of started to doubt that any of them is truly reliable. Which is maybe exactly what people on all sides of this divide want, because after all, when the facts are less certain, people fall back on their gut feelings, and that's good for politics. Most people agree that there's far more oil now in unconventional reserves i.e. not traditional oil wells. So we're talking about things like tar sands, fracking for natural gas, that kind of unconventional reserves. There's more oil in those unconventional reserves than there is left in the oil wells. But whether unconventional reserves could ever replace their more conventional cousins is also a source of considerable debate. For a start, more drilling effort is required, and it's more energy intensive to purify these reserves for actual use. Way back in 1900, much less energy was required to extract the oil than was gained from burning it. 
The ratio used to be around 100 to 1 in terms of the energy you got from burning the oil compared to the energy you needed to put in to extract it. Now it's closer to 20 to 1, and for oil from tar sands, 3 to 1. So you can see it might well reach a point where we can't obtain decent returns from extracting these unconventional forms of fossil fuel. I mean, if it requires as much energy as you get from burning the oil, it's already pointless, and they'll have to remain in the ground. Yet at least recently, the US has taken over again as the lead producer of oil, due to its ability to tap these unconventional reserves. So it's really, really difficult to see where we are. For every expert who tells you that peak oil will never arrive, you can find others who will tell you that it's happened in the next 20 years, that it's already happened, or that it's occurring right now. It's infuriating. But regardless of how infuriating it is to nail down whether peak oil is actually happening now, and we really don't know, it seems clear to me that fossil fuel production is in a similar Malthusian race, if you like, to production of other types of resource like we talked about in that previous episode. It's going to be necessary for new innovations to outstrip the rate of change of demand if we want to avoid a peak oil style catastrophe. And whether that's possible is very much in the balance, both of the rate of change of human innovation and in subtle questions of the economic demands of new methods of production. There are almost too many unknowns to make predictions, and yet, as ever, you'll find plenty of people making confident predictions either way. Personally, I think this is all a little overwrought. Technological developments will change things, of course they will. But it's really just a matter of decades. In the grand scheme of things, we cannot go on using fossil fuels forever, and you'll find very few people who will project the current supplies of fossil fuels lasting beyond, say, 2100. The fossil fuel era is going to be a tiny fraction of human history. Now, as Dr. Rule points out, you could feasibly imagine a future driven by oil where biofuels have essentially replaced all of the functions that oil once had. But at some point, whether it's driven by a scarcity of resources, or it just becomes cheaper to do other things, more likely a confluence of all these factors, we're not going to be digging up fossils to burn anymore. But if this happens for factors beyond our control, for running out of oil, will we be able to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels in time? Renewable energy currently accounts for about 8% of world electricity production. Now, this is another frustrating area for statisticians, because you can see people quote statistics like, renewable sources of energy account for a quarter of energy consumption. Note that's energy consumption, not electricity production. So it might be true by some definition, but it usually includes biomass as a large fraction, what's called conventional biomass. Essentially, people who still burn wood on fires to keep warm, things like that. And that's indeed a renewable source of energy, and I suppose it shouldn't be discounted, but it's kind of hard to see how that could replace fossil fuels in an environmentally sound way. So saying that a quarter of the world's energy production is renewable energy is really overstating the potential, and I think it's a bit disingenuous, because that's not what people think of when they think of renewable energy. So we're still deeply, deeply dependent on fossil fuels. Nuclear fission power is not a long-term solution because uranium is also a finite resource. It's made by supernovas, and there's only so much of it on Earth. It might buy us some time, especially if it looks like peak oil is drawing near. But, I mean, if you look at the most recent power plant that's been built in the UK, the Hinkley Point Reactor, that's already a terrible deal that the government's done. It, it's going to produce electricity at a far more expensive rate than any other type of power plant, and so I really don't see, unless there's huge government investment, people moving back towards these nuclear reactors because everything else is cheaper. Can we replace our entire energy infrastructure with renewable energy? 
This is maybe the biggest question facing the species in the medium to long term. A brilliant resource for this, I, I really can't recommend this book enough, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. You can download it for free online, it's by the late David McKay, who was a fellow of the Royal Society in Cambridge, and uh, it's just a wonderful book, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. He explains what Britain would look like if we attempted to supply all of our energy demands with renewables that were generated in this country. Now the book is pitched just perfectly, it explains how the different forms of renewable energy work and how they might be implemented. Anyone can read and understand it, and yet there are simple, practical insights that are refreshingly unbiased by political concerns in politics. It's probably the best book I've read on the subject. It's completely driven by the facts. And while McKay, like anyone reasonable, shows his hand a little with the dedication, quote, to those who will not have the benefit of two billion years of accumulated energy reserves, end quote, he's motivated by the science and the numbers, and a desire to cut down on the confusion of figures that's frustrated me when I've been trying to look into peak oil productions for this episode. The whole point is, with simple mathematics, he's illustrating the scale of the challenge that's facing us. Okay, I'll stop gushing, but please read it. You can get it for free online. It, it's a great read. The challenge is that we need a lot of renewable power. So covering every reasonable surface in solar panels still might not cut the mustard. To power the UK by solar alone, he estimated we'd need to blanket 20% of the country in solar panels, which could be tricky to say the least. Of course, other sources like wind and hydroelectric power can help out. In reality, our renewable future, should we ever manage to get there, is going to depend on a complex mix of power sources that allow us to compensate for issues like the variability of power output from solar and wind, possibly with a focus on battery storage. Variability is a big issue in the national grid. You have to be able to supply in such a way that you cope with surges in demand. But these surges can be on different timescales. So, for example, if you have a particularly cold day, everyone turns the radiator on, and there's a surge in power for that day. But I mean, there's a huge surge in power at the advertising breaks for popular TV shows because everyone goes into the kitchen and switches on the kettle. You know, we, we really do work like that on average, and it causes a massive surge in power. And in fact, that's what hydroelectric power plants are often used for. They keep a lot of water behind the dam, and then when they realise that it's, there's about to be a surge because there, there's a, I don't know, a goal's been scored in the World Cup or something... Uh, they throw the damn lever and uh, all of the water <laughs> passes through the turbine and generates all that excess electricity that's needed. But the issue with renewable energy is that unlike power plants like coal, oil, gas, nuclear, we can't turn them on and off to change with storage. The sun's shining or it isn't, it's windy or it isn't, and that to an extent means that we have a variability problem. One way you can get around it is by building far more capacity than you need, but then we need to blanket even more of the country in solar panels than we would before, so that doesn't quite work. Which is why battery storage is such an interesting issue, and it's why so many people are working on it. And actually, a good thing about battery storage is that now that electric cars are beginning to come into their own, people are beginning to think, okay, let's work on better batteries, because there's now an economic motivation for it. And you find that these things, they really only ever get optimised when there's an economic motivation for it. So there might not be a good reason to build a battery for a grid that's made entirely of renewable energy. That's the kind of thing that a university might do, or you know, forward-thinking scientists might do. But a technology company might not see it as a good investment. But building a better battery for an electric car, that's a good investment. So hopefully we'll see some progress in that soon. So covering 20% of this country in solar panels, or 10% in solar panels and 10% in wind farms, this kind of thing's fantastical. I don't think that's ever going to happen. 
Offshore wind farms can help more, and actually they're currently the cheapest electricity supplies to install in the UK by some margin, but you still need a lot of them. And things like solar panels and wind farms are reaching their theoretical limits of efficiency, although some very clever scientists are looking to get around them in both cases. I actually wrote an article on that for solar panels in case anyone's interested, I'd be more than happy to do a mini-episode about it. So, people might hear these figures and throw their hands up in despair. I take them as evidence that we're not doing enough. The solutions may eventually need to be more radical, but they need not necessarily involve a massive reduction in consumption, although any reduction in our energy consumption will help. The point needs to be made. The UK is not a fantastic place to put solar panels. If you're going to blanket a huge area in solar panels, what about the Sahara Desert? This is one of the areas where the sunlight intensity is consistently strongest. Global electricity consumption is 17.3 terawatts of power. That is, every second, we consume 17.3 million million joules of energy. A joule is about the energy required to lift an apple from the floor onto a table. If you had an area of around 43,000 square miles covered in solar panels in the Sahara Desert, it would supply the world's energy needs. That's just 1.2% of the Sahara Desert. I mean, okay, the Sahara Desert is vast and huge and massive, and it's the equivalent of an area bigger than the entire United Kingdom, but if you're a dreamer, it can be done. And it seems more feasible to me than blanketing 20% of every nation like the UK with solar panels. The issues arise from the cost of initially building this massive power plant. $5 trillion was estimated by Forbes, and I, I see it rising much higher than that, because this type of project inevitably does. There's so many costs that come in that you didn't factor in in the initial project, it would be more than that. But if we do take $5 trillion at face value, what is that? The Iraq war cost $2 trillion. If you believe that peak oil is going to happen, and more similar wars will be necessary for securing the oil supply to the West, then maybe it's worthwhile. Although, let's be honest here, if energy security was the real aim of Iraq, they could have spent the money in far, far better ways. $5 trillion is around a quarter of the US national debt. It's less than the wealth of the richest 2,000 people in the world. Those 2,000 people, if they were willing to invest their fortunes, could fund this. And it's not like this money is going into a black hole. Energy expenditures account for roughly $6 trillion a year, 10% of the world's GDP. You'd make your money back in no time. Obviously, I'm being flippant. There are still huge, huge challenges for large-scale solar panels like this. Not least energy storage, which is really still in its infancy compared to where it would need to be for this to be viable. And in transportation. Developments in high-voltage cables that can transport power long distances are actually coming along at a good speed, and you don't lose as much power as you used to. But there's other things. There's the security issue of having the entire global energy supply in one place, and who gets the profits, etc. If you're going to insist that natural resources can be owned by people, then really, you're kind of exploiting Africa all over again. So, all of these things are ruined by human nature and our lack of desire slash ability to cooperate fairly with each other towards a single goal. It's really tragic. And we should point out that it was this type of thing, amongst other concerns, that led to the first really large-scale effort towards actually getting this done, Desertec, which built some solar panels in the Sahara Desert, to be broadly abandoned back in 2013. Investors pulled out of the project, which they'd hoped would supply up to 15% of Europe's power supplies via electricity wired in from the Sahara Desert. Eventually, the political and practical concerns were just too much for them. The truth is that you need a huge capital outlay in strengthening the infrastructure as well as building the plant. Now, large-scale transmission of power between nations does happen. In fact, here in the UK, surges in demand are often met by an undersea cable that can import masses of power from France for a price but the technology has not been fully developed yet. 
the storage to deal with the intermittency problem is a much bigger concern. But since we're in the realm of dreams already, why limit yourself to just one desert? Solar panels in the world's deserts needn't just be focused on the Sahara. The sun's always shining somewhere. And if you combine this with other forms of electricity that can be turned on and off more readily, like hydroelectric power, or pumped storage where water is pumped uphill during times of excess production and released downhill through turbines when it's needed, you might just be in with a shot at meeting demand. Denmark and Norway, which generate vast amounts of their power via renewable energy, up to 59%, cope with the intermittency problem by trading power with each other. And since for this to work, we're kind of assuming that the grid does go global and the country's power supplies all become deeply interconnected, it's not impossible to imagine that we could scale up this kind of trading system and, overall, deal with the intermittency issue by trading electricity with each other. There is at least no physical reason why this couldn't happen. So write to your local politicians and demand solar panels in the Sahara. I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the truth is, as David McKay points out, little changes are not going to cut it. If we're really going to supply our energy needs with renewables, which we will one day have to do, the change is going to have to be big and it's going to have to be radical. You might look at something like the Sahara Plan and think that it's completely ridiculous. You can look at the depressing facts about just how much further renewables have to go before they can supply all our energy needs, and throw up your hands in despair. Or you can view it as a challenge that we have to face. Unless we can develop nuclear fusion reactors, or some other source of energy that hasn't even been considered yet, something like this is going to be necessary if, at some point, we want to continue to consume energy the way we do right now, and if we want to extend those rights to the same level of consumption that we enjoy to the rest of the world. You may believe that international collaboration alone is too much to ask of the species. I hope that it is not. Some good news is that solar panels have been declining in price incredibly quickly. Again, some of the statistics are prone to manipulation, exaggeration, and we have to remember that the good sites for putting solar panels on are also a finite resource. But at the moment, we're way off saturation, so it's so much cheaper to invest in solar compared to mature, saturated technologies like fossil fuels. Even with these caveats, it's striking how fast the price has been coming down. Estimating prices is tricky, but it's already cheaper than coal. So regardless of whatever political efforts you might make, you're not going to beat the free market when an energy executive is deciding which type of power plant it makes the most financial sense to install. Solar is going to win. One subtlety in this argument that I've missed out so far is, obviously for any of this to work, we need to say goodbye to petrol-driven cars. And on this front, we are making progress in the last few years. Tesla, although they only have a small part of the market share at the moment, have proved the concept. People are driving around in electric cars. You're beginning to see in some places car charging points alongside car parks. So there's hope on this front that we can eventually shift most of the transportation network onto electrical power. And then, if this can be generated renewably, we can eliminate our dependence on fossil fuels entirely. The added bonus is that electric cars will likely be much more efficient than the traditional petrol-powered cars. Shifting the global energy economy towards renewables is going to be a huge challenge. It can be done. The resources are there, the price is going down, the technologies are getting better. I can dream of a future, maybe in 100 years, maybe in 200 years, where we no longer need fossil fuels. The real question is whether we manage to achieve it before things go badly wrong, and before we run out of fossil fuels long before the sufficient renewable capacity is built or that we burn so many fossil fuels that irreversible climate change becomes the limiting factor, like Dr. Rule said it would. I remind you that he's the chief economist of a petrol company. I can't know whether we can beat these concerns, but I really, really hope we can. And if peak oil does manifest itself and the price starts shooting up,
Providing we can avert the apocalypse in the meantime, it might just give us the kickstart we need to stop pretending that we can dig these heels up forever. Hopefully, we as a species will be too smart and too prudent to allow something as silly as a peak oil catastrophe to wreck civilization. But then again, I wouldn't bank on it. Thank you for listening to this Teotrwalki special of Physical Attraction. Have you got opinions about peak oil? Because I'd love to hear them. You can contact us on PhysicsPod at Twitter. Uh, we're always there. Uh, PhysicsPod at Outlook.com is another good place. Uh, leave us a review, rate us on iTunes, tell your friends, tell your enemies. Anyone we can get on board. It's all greatly appreciated. And of course, if you're thinking, as we're getting towards the end of our countdown, that your favourite apocalypse is missing, why don't you ask me about it and see if I drop hints? Because we're getting into the top four, and the end of the world's about to get a whole lot scarier. Until then, stay safe. You better make some preparations. There's no time for hesitations. Compile a list of tips. Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. Do get ready.